I'm talking to Dennis Dunaway of the Alice Cooper Band. I kind of call it the real band, Dennis, going back to the early days. Well, we had a chemistry that works to this day. I mean, when we just did the tour in England, as soon as we start playing the original band, uh, it just sounds like you're back home again. hard to find that chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. You started off pre-fame in, in Phoenix, Arizona. Was that with the earwigs? We did a spoof on the Beatles where we wore wigs and we called ourselves the earwigs. We were supposed to be from cesspool, England. And since Alice and I were lettermen from running cross-country and track, we were long-distance runners. We, we changed the lyrics to Beatles songs to be sports-oriented. Anthony for three. Bang! That one goes down, and the game is tied! I was going to ask you, because you're originally from Oregon, right? Yes. And I know that myself, I love to run, and I'm a big fan of uh, Steve Prefontaine. Was he also a big influence on you as an athlete? <laughs> Absolutely. All of those guys. The American in front, almost a cult in the United States. He's a sort of athletic beetle. There are T-shirts around, go free, all around the stadium, worn by American fans. After the earwigs, we got legit, and we got a gig at the big club in Phoenix, Arizona, and we changed our name to The Spiders, and we got big. We had a, a song that went to number 11 on AM radio in Tucson, Arizona. When we migrated to Los Angeles, Hollywood in particular, we saw the excitement was to the moon. And we decided, okay, well, do we want to still remain a big fish in a little pond, or do we want to go for the big time? And us, like 3,000 other bands in LA at the time, moved there and started trying to get gigs, but we also changed our image radically. We became very avant-garde, and that caught the attention of Frank Zappa, and we ended up recording with him on his label, Bizarre. Bizarre. Today, mother, let it happen, happy, slapping, tapping, patio. She'd like to give her life away, like to stay another day old. The Pretties for You album, which was very experimental. And I know you've mentioned that it's actually, uh, in hindsight, one of your favorites. Talk a little bit about Pretties for You. There's a lot of fans out there that still say that's their favorite album. And my heart is with it because I love the avant-gardeness of it. It's not like any other album, and you can not make another one like it. There's songs on there that's like less than two minutes long that have 50 different changes. You know, there's songs 10 minutes before the worm. Let me be what a way for one to The song starts with our guinea pigs eating lettuce. 
Right, so, right. So it was, it was out there. That's what Frank Zappa liked about it. And it definitely had its following then, but it wasn't putting food on our table, so we decided we needed to write some songs that kids could relate to more. Easy action. So you went in for the second album and worked with producer David Briggs on one of my favorite, and a lot of our listeners cite to Easy Action as a, a favorite too. Talk a little bit about that record. action happened we weren't quite ready to go back in the studio we were trying to learn how to write songs that were more relatable but we were like only a third of the way ready to go in the studio but because of contractual obligations we got pulled in the studio prematurely so there's a lot of on-the-spot stuff on easy action David Briggs was very patient with us, except he did not like the avant-garde part, and there was still a lot of that left over from the Pretties For You era. He worked with uh, uh, Crazy Horse. Right, right, Neil Young's uh, a band. Right, he had just finished that album. And there was a separation of different, there were the hippies in LA, there were the bands that wore tan leather jackets with fringe, and, and then there were the freaks, like the Mothers of Invention and us. It was kind of like oil and water. He wasn't really comfortable with uh, what we were doing. My base had gotten wrecked. We had an accident on the LA freeway where our truck rolled over three times and all of our equipment got smashed. And I didn't even have a base. And he said, go look in the closet over there and see if there's anything. And I pulled out a base and I opened it, and it was a Hofner bass, and I'm going, oh my God, a Hofner, I'm not used to playing that. Was it like the, I, the Paul McCartney, like violin-shaped thing? Exactly. Right. It right. was that exact uh, style of bass. And I picked it up, and I turned it over, and it said the cow sills on oh, the geez. back. Oh, jeez, no kidding. Yeah, I played the cow sills bass on <laughs> easy action. <laughs> I saw the sitting in the rain. You see on Easy Action, you see where it's kind of heading because you're starting to work towards that first hit song. We were headed there, but as far as David Briggs was concerned, we have had a, a very abstract song on Easy Action that was influenced by composer Carline Stockhouse. Is that still no air? No, it was Lay Down and Die Goodbye, okay. and it goes into this very, where it's not really musical scales or anything, it's just sort of sounds created by feedbacks from amplifiers and everything, and it's more like a sound collage than actual structure. Is that the one and that says, if you don't like what I say, you can turn me off? That's right, and that's Tommy Smothers from his uh, farewell speech. Is it they... really? Yeah. Wow, wow, I never would have guessed that. 
are the only censor. If you don't like what I say, you have a choice. You can turn me off. But David Briggs, he did not like that part of our musical style. When we went in the studio to do that, he said, why don't you guys go in there and put the psychedelic garbage on? So talk a little bit, Dennis, about how it all starts to come together, because Love It to Death was the breakthrough for you guys. What's the story? How do you get from easy action to Love It to Death? Are you still in L.A., or are you going to move off to Michigan now? After easy action, even though everybody made fun of us in L.A. because our image was so androgynous and shocking and, and everything, we worked more than most bands there. But we didn't work enough to be able to make ends meet. When we recorded Easy Action, we were already kind of living out of suitcases on the road, just traveling to any gig we could get. I called it the Zorro Method. We might do Seattle, Washington, and then we might do Maine, Bangor, Maine, and then we might do Texas, and we might do Florida. And it always seemed to form a gigantic Z with uh, gigs as far apart as possible. <laughs> we had to take anything that came along. But finally we landed, we got a farmhouse in Detroit, and we could play as late as we wanted. Uh, there weren't any neighbors to bother, and that's when we were able to really lock down and start learning how to write. And mostly Michael Bruce woodshedded a lot and learned how to structure songs and everything. He, he had a big Beatles influence, so he could come up with a, he had more pop sensibility than the rest of us. It would be nice to walk upon the water, talk again to angels at my side. I just come back to show you But on the same token, we had decided that it's important to push this Alice Cooper character, the dark character. So I wrote Black Juju. Neil Smith wrote uh, Hallowed Be My Name. We wanted to write songs that would be vehicles for Alice to develop this dark character. And by the time Bob Esrin saw us at Max's Kansas City in New York City, we were kind of scraping bottom. You know, we were just trying to find food wherever we could, and New York City wasn't kind to us. Right, you mentioned in a previous conversation that New York initially wasn't particularly receptive to Alice Cooper. It seemed like New York wouldn't play our singles until they were already way up the charts everywhere else. You know, we would assault crowds, and not everybody liked us. Half the people would walk out, and the other half would be raving about it. Uh, but we liked that. We liked that it was controversial. Nobody was... Uh, there was no apathy. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> no apathy whatsoever. Right. <laughs> In New York City, everybody just locked their arms and stood there staring at us. You know, and we got terrible reviews. But by then, we had uh, songs like Caught in a Dream. We had I'm 18, even though it was a longer, sprawling version. 
so we had learned how to do what we set out to do, which was come up with these dark songs like Black Juju and, and come up with these more commercial AM radio songs. And Bob Ezrin was there in the audience because we had been bugging his boss, Jack Richardson, who produced the Guess Who. We knew we had a reputation. We had tossed the chickens in the audience in Canada. We had recorded with Zappa. And so we had a reputation, but what we really needed was a hit single. Jack Richardson sent Bob Ezrin to New York to listen to us so that he could say, okay, we listened and now go away and stop bugging me. <laughs> but right. Bob Ezrin came back and said, I like him. <laughs> So Jack Richardson said, if you like them so much, you produce them. So we went back to Warner Brothers, who had turned us down in the early days. They had come to see us when we played at the Whiskey A Go-Go with Led Zeppelin on their very first tour. And they were overheard walking out saying, how can we go back to the board of directors and tell them we want to sign five guys in dresses? <laughs> well, we didn't have dresses, but that's the image that people got from them. Anyway, now they went back and Warner Brothers said, okay, we'll sign you, but Bob Ezrin has never produced a record. So we'll sign you with the understanding that Jack Richardson will be in the studio because Jack Richardson always got a hit single and he always delivered albums under budget. So Jack Richardson had a lot to do with Love It To Death and Killer albums, the sound of those albums. Not to take anything away from Bob Ezrin, he was the young, musically trained guy who could remember what we had come up with the day before at rehearsal where none of us could remember. Talk a little bit, Dennis, about I'm 18, because that was your breakthrough hit. What did that feel like for you guys? I'm 18 started like a, it was just uh, some chords that we would play when we did a sound check. And then I would sing a verse, just improvising, and Alice would sing something if it popped into his head, and Michael would sing. And, and it was just this long thing that we'd just play almost every day because we had a lot of gigs back then. And it just kept developing. And then when it started leaning toward the concept of being aimed at 18-year-old, that's when it became I'm 18, and then we still had tons of verses, you know, and some of them were better than others. But when Bob Ezrin heard us in New York City, he loved the song, but he thought it was called I'm Edgy. <laughs> <laughs> he cut out a lot of stuff and whittled it right down to the length that you need for a single, and we did it right away. I mean, we just spent an afternoon and the song was ready.
Do you think when you when you started off, Dennis, were you more inclined to be weird for weird sake? Because it seems like you moved into this direction of more pop-like songs. But w- was it always a balance? Did you always appreciate a simple pop song in addition to uh, the more wild stuff? Because I think of a song like Shoe Salesman or something from Easy Action. That's in a kind of a pop format there. You, you always had the capability right from the start. Our education was the British Invasion, the Kinks, the Beatles. Those were all pop songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had that, especially Michael Bruce. I know a shoe salesman is an acquaintance of I was an artist all my life, and when we decided to put all of our energy into the band, we were only like 17 and he was 16 when we started the band. And I said, if I'm going to put everything into the band, I don't want to give up art. Let's incorporate art into the band. So that's why we made those abstract avant-garde statements on Pretties For You. And then we came to the conclusion that, well, if nobody's going to hear those, (laughs) we need to get a single and get some songs that people can relate to. And then once they buy the album, they can hear the other side of us. So therefore, I'm 18 was the, the door to get people to listen to Black Juju. Black Juju. So uh, let's move on now to the Killer album, which was next. And I suppose with that hit song come new pressures to recreate that, to have another hit. Is that what happened? Yeah, they say getting your first single is extremely hard and getting your second single is even harder. Right. I think that long distance mentality that Alice and I had, it was like there's no rear view mirror. You know, we just kept moving forward and we were determined and we would not give up. I came into this life, looked all around. I saw just what I liked and took what I found. Nothing came easy, nothing came free. Nothing came at all until they came after me. Our managers and our roadies and everybody in the band, we just did not know the words give up. We always would turn it around and everything was against us. So many people did not like what we were doing. They put us down for doing theatrics and everything. But I mean, on Love It to Death, even though we went into the studio prepared, we still had had two strikes against us with our first two albums. They both barely made the charts. And we were ready to celebrate on those. We thought Pretty's For You was gonna set the world on fire. Frank Zappa played it for the Beatles and told us that they liked it, so we thought we were in. Love It to Death 
we walked into the studio still thinking, well, we're not going to pop any champagne until we actually see something happen this time. And then when it happened, now we're feeling our oats. We had a hit. We knew everybody was going to be listening to this album, and we felt ready. We were confident on Killer. Dead babies can't take care of themselves. Dead babies can't take things off the shelf. So you're working uh, again with Ezrin on Killer? I recorded on Alice's new album, the Paranormal album. One of the songs that I did with Alice, The Sound of A, it's called. It's, right. a, it's the new single. That song is a throwback to Easy Action. Alice wrote three songs on guitar back then. Shoe Salesman, Laughing at Me, and this song, Sound of A, which didn't make the album. The sound of A is in the air. The sound of A is everywhere. With the sound of a gun And you run Yeah, yeah, yeah Going back to the chronology of your recording, in the end, what was your biggest takeaway from the, from the Killer album? For me, I think it might be my favorite of all your records. I think it's my favorite, too. Pretty for you, my heart is with that. But I think uh, Killer was our best album because across the board, it was still the band was was in charge of everything right because of the success of i'm 18 we were playing a lot more gigs therefore you just get better when you play a lot you know we had gotten really fed up with writers saying that we relied on theatrics you know because we couldn't play and so we wrote the song halo of flies which uh, has a lot of very difficult things in the arrangement and it's a lengthy song that kind of proved that we could play. Now we had that, where people all of a sudden would respect our playing as well as our theatrics. And one, a Asian lady, she really came as no surprise. But I still did destroy her, and I will smash Halo We came out of that album on top of the world. Even though we didn't get a hit off of it that was as big as I'm 18. The telephone is ringing. You got me on the run. We had Under My Wheels, which I wrote, which was very popular in certain parts of the country, but it wasn't like I'm 18. It didn't take off like that. And then we had Be My Lover, which was kind of the same thing. It, you know, they did all right, but they didn't get up on the charts like I'm 18. So that led to our focus on Schools Out to, to come up with another song. She struts into the room. 
Did it scare you a little bit when you didn't get a hit on Killer, or did you just keep soldiering on? You know, bands were putting out two albums a year then. We not only put out two albums a year, but we did two stage shows to go with the concept right. of those albums as well. We were too busy to worry about much, you know. All I cared about is what are we going to do next. Dennis, were you headlining at this point, or were you still mostly a support act? Our management was smart. When we would get offered to play an arena where it was a bit of a gamble as to whether or not we'd be able to draw enough people to fill it, we would go into the theater and pack the place, and there'd be people outside that couldn't get in. And that gave us the bargaining clout. So when we could do an arena, we didn't have any failures to our credit. So it depended. At that point, we would play festivals and we'd get great reactions. And some cities we would headline and other ones we wouldn't. You know, Toledo, they wanted to kill us, you know, every time we played Toledo. And then we'd play Cleveland and they'd love us. So right, right. it was like that. You know, we never knew what to expect. But we were getting there. We knew we were getting there. And... The failure of Under My Wheels and Be My Lover to be as big as I'm 18, because we were doing albums, two albums a year, we were still able to ride on the wave of I'm 18 through that. We believed early on, you know, all the way from the Stones being the bad boys, you know, and, and Elvis, you know, and Jerry Lee Lewis. We knew that parents couldn't like it. <laughs> right, right. That kind of continues uh, with a band like uh, Marilyn Manson or, or an artist like Marilyn, who is definitely influenced by you guys. Exactly. Therefore, my wife and I are careful about telling our kids we don't want them to listen to certain music. Well, they're grown up now, but when they were younger, we'd think, if you tell a kid that they can't listen to that, what are you going to want to listen to as a kid? <laughs> So are you, are you still in Michigan as you're doing uh, Schools Out? No, actually, Schools Out. At that point, 1971, the band moved from the Pontiac Farmhouse outside of Detroit to the New York City area because that's where our management office was. Mm -hmm. This was a, a silly decision on the band's part. I voted against it, but we felt that we were spending too much money on long-distance phone calls in Pontiac. I'm like, well... We're never home anyway. It's not going to make any difference in the phone bill. But nevertheless, we all moved to this mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, 
and that's where we recorded schools out at the record plant. You started off as the five kids uh, from Phoenix. Are you still that close at this time, or are people starting to get into their own things? Is Alice getting a little more attention from the media than the rest of the band? How's that going at this time? You know, we we developed the Alice character. When we were in New York City the first time, I saw a poster at the New York City Center, and there was a big poster of this clown with this crazy makeup. It was a little bit different than what Alice wore at the time, the spider eye makeup, they call it. I saw that, and I said, Alice, look at that poster. If you wore something like that, then kids could see you from the back row. You know, and Neil got a snake, and we decided to work that into the show. Alice Cooper was the name of the band. In the early days, if somebody walked into a room and said, hey, Alice, we all felt that they didn't get what we were doing. <laughs> you know, Alice wouldn't look, but we decided, let's focus on this character, this dark character, and we will come up with the songs to support that. Of course, Alice was getting more attention because in most people's minds, he was Alice Cooper and we were his band. Well, even Alice corrects people when they say that because Alice Cooper was the band. That was okay because Alice was much better at doing interviews because he could enhance stories and make them very interesting. I used to say Alice could make opening a can of tuna fish sound <laughs> interesting. Sorry, Charlie. And to have the rest of us there interjecting what really happened, it just didn't work. We couldn't correct Alice's story because he's coming up with something entertaining, and if we told them what really happened, there's a conflict of stories going on, you see? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was okay with us because, let's specialize. Alice, we will be working on new songs, getting the chord structure and all that together where you don't need to be there. You, of course, when you're there, it's better, but you do the interviews, we'll do the music. So that was kind of the deal that we decided. And therefore, naturally, we were agreeing to let Alice be in the limelight. Right, and that took a, a degree of maturity on your guys' part to recognize that. Uh, so I think that's the first time anybody used the word maturity <laughs> concerning the group. <laughs> So with Schools Out, the hit uh, returns, uh, the song Schools Out is a, a big success. But if you talk about the band, the cohesiveness, uh, you talk about your favorite, uh, Pretties For You, uh, Easy Action, We Have Love It To Death, and Killer. What changes now on Schools Out? 
Not that I'm digging for dirt, but but is that where the first cracks start to appear? I think the first cracks were during that album, even though not so obvious during that album. I mean, it was still a band in the studio, and we had a lot of fun recording that album. Right. I mean, we were doing things like, oh, let's record a taxi driver cursing. So we'd run a line all the way out to the street in New York City, and it's like 3 o'clock in the morning when a cab driver would come by. <laughs> we'd yell at him and hold the microphone out to hear what he yelled back. <laughs> we had all kinds of fun doing that album, so it didn't really seem that much like cracks. The cracks were starting to show up in the interviews where people were taking a little bit more credit or given more credit than they well, not more than they deserve, but they were kind of excluding the band, what we did. Was there resentment building then? Yeah, a little bit at that point. You know, people tended to give Bob Ezrin a lot of credit for the songs that we wrote. And even though he deserved a lot of credit, it wasn't like we should be shoved out of getting any mention. There would be more and more interviews that didn't even mention the band. I think it's just the public has this way of simplifying things. And, you know, you can put one person on a pedestal and focus on that. That's sort of what we asked for but we didn't realize the extent of us being sort of shoved into the shadows. I have to imagine now that School's Out is out. Now you're headlining shows. Are you going international at this point? Actually, we went to England to promote Under My Wheels. And as soon as we got back to America, we went immediately from the Killer Tour in England to the School's Out Tour as soon as we touched down back in America. Talk about staging and a set list and everything changing radically overnight. You know, we did that while we were still playing tons of gigs. Right. But soon after that, when we got back to America, we played just a couple of warm-up gigs as we looked at it to get that show tight. And then we played the Hollywood Bowl. Up until the Hollywood Bowl, I was still very leery and gun-shy about whether the band had made it, but the night of the Hollywood Bowl, I said, nobody plays the Hollywood Bowl unless they've made it. And that's the night that I said, we've made it.
A personal question here, Dennis, as you say that. Did you did your family, your your mom and dad or their siblings, did they get to see you experience this success? From a distance. My parents had never seen me play. Ever. Right, wow. And we flew them down to Tucson, Arizona to a show. And I found out after the show, I said, uh, so what did you think? And they said, well, we were all ready to see the show. And as soon as you guys walked out, everybody stood up on their chairs and we didn't <laughs> see a thing. <laughs> but they heard that they heard the adulation. And I bet yeah, you yeah. I, I bet you when they met Vince, as you call him, Alice Cooper, uh, he probably charmed them, too. He seemed like a person who could could really charm people. They liked everything. Everybody in the group. Glenn was always very likable, and whenever we'd go to the other guy's house to rehearse, we used to move around from house to house because the cops tended to show up when we made noise. So we'd try to not wear out our welcome too much. But whenever we'd go to the other guy's parents' house, we'd all turn into Eddie Haskell. And put <laughs> right, our right. Best, yeah, <laughs> our best charm. <laughs> Good afternoon, Mrs. Cleaver. Let's keep going forward now and talk a little bit about Billion Dollar Babies. What stays most in your mind about the making of that album? Pretty's For You reflected Hollywood glitz. Easy action didn't quite develop to where we had a concept. That was kind of out on the road and a lot of different things happening. Love It to Death had to do with Detroit and things being tough and hard. And so did Killer because that's where we lived. Schools Out was New York City. You see how the themes would go with the influences of the environment. Now we're in this mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, and we decide, okay, we're going to be like the kids that get rich as rock and roll guys, and we're still brats, but now we've got money. So that was the concept of the album. Please clean your plate the load above can see you. Don't you know people are starving in Korea? Alcohol and razor blades and poison and needles. Kindergarten people, they use them, they need them. And I laugh to myself at the man and the ladies who never conceived of a billion dollar famous. La da 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 da! difference in that album and any other one that we did before or since is that we brought out a mobile truck. That was the recording studio and the whole house with all of these different very affluent rooms, ceiling tiles from Italy and stuff like that. We wired the house so the bathroom might be the vocal booth right. and the solarium might be the echo chamber and there were microphones all over the house. It was very comfortable. You could go in the kitchen and grab a cup of tea and come back and go for another take. We did most of that album out of our home. This is where you started to see more cracks, where Bob Ezrin started asserting more iron-fisted, no, we're going to do this song, we're not going to do that song. And we're like, well, wait a minute, we vote on everything, don't we? <laughs> right. That's where you started to see those kind of cracks. What about drugs and alcohol at this point? Are they starting to have some effect? Mostly Glenn Buxton, who at the time was doing some hard drugs, which we didn't quite realize yet. We just uh, chalked up his behavior of not wanting to get up until three in the afternoon to uh, drinking, because him and Alice were both drinking very heavily at that point. I love the dead before they rise. No farewells, no goodbyes. 
I never even knew you're now rotting face. While friends and lovers mourn your silly grave, I have other uses for you, darling. Alice got an apartment in New York City, and him and his girlfriend would be out hobnobbing with celebrities while the band would be getting up the next morning early and start digging into whipping the album into shape. That was the other thing where you saw a crack, because up until then, the band had always done everything together. Was there any kind of intervention? Did you say things to each other, or were you just trying to be cool and just get the job done? We didn't confront anybody as a band until maybe the middle of Billion Dollar Babies. We all confronted Glenn as right, a band. Right. Up until then, it was always just I would go and have a chat with Alice and Neil would at a different time, you know, and it was more like one-on-one. Did you bring in supplemental musicians for A Billion Dollar Babies to help out with guitars and things like that? I, I know Dick Wagner's name comes up in association with your band. All the way back when we first met Bob Ezrin, he wanted to help Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter because they were in bands uh, Frost and Ursa Major. Right, and right. Ezrin always wanted to get them gigs. Uh-huh. That's where they came into the picture, but we knew them because we did gigs with Mitch Ryder in Detroit, right. and Steve Hunter was a guitar player. But anyway, there were two reasons. Number one, because Glenn was getting very unreliable. He might show up, and he might sound great, or he might show up and waste a whole day, which we couldn't afford to waste. The band was willing to give him those chances, but Bob Ezrin wasn't. We had to get this album done under budget. And also, it was very difficult when Glenn was not playing his best. It was very difficult to go in and tell him to pack it in because he wasn't cutting it. So that led to not inviting Glenn.
I'm thinking of Donovan. How did he end up on Billion Dollar Babies? Now we recorded the brunt of the songs at the Galesia State, but we needed a few more songs to finish the album. But we had to go on tour in England. We went into Morgan Studios outside of London, and Donovan was recording in the other studio at the same time. So when we uh, were ready to do the vocals on Billion Dollar Babies, we went up and said, hey, we've got this song, and we'd love to have you sing on it. And he came down, and oh, man, was he good. <laughs> you think of Donovan as these beautiful kind of folky songs, and some of them have a message. A lot of them are like this kind of fantasy sort of thing. But man, Billion Dollar Babies, when he cut loose, I never heard him sing like that before. Did he do the talking too, like, I'm so scared your little head will come off in my hands? Was that him? Yeah, they traded off. What, uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy? That was a big hit off that album. What else did you have? Elected was a pretty big hit. Right, definitely. And that probably keeps coming up recurring over the years, uh, different election cycles. I imagine that one rears its head quite often. It does. And we intentionally did that because Schools Out had proven to have this uh, seasonal yearly comeback. So we thought, okay, well, elections happen every two years. Let's uh, <laughs> write one for that. from the outside as a fan up until that point you know we don't see what's going on internally it just seems like it's getting bigger and bigger and better and better and then you get to muscle of love and even as a kid out in Iowa uh, my friend and I who loved you guys so much were like wait a minute this is different something's going on talk about muscle of love was that a difficult record for you yeah there were a lot of things going on at that point the separation of alice from the band during the billion dollar babies tour had become something that really wasn't right with the setup bodyguards were hired for alice that's fine but the bodyguards would screen our calls I'd call Alice or I'd go over to his room and they wouldn't let me in. Like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> We're so young and pretty.
Was Alice himself becoming more detached from you guys? I think he was drinking so much that he didn't realize a lot of what was going on around him. We were in the fishbowl a little bit, but not like Alice. If you went into Alice's hotel room during the day before a gig, he would be sitting in a chair watching television, and the room would be full of people all sitting around watching Alice. And if Alice said, can somebody get me a beer, a hundred people would scramble. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a drag it is, these golden man jeans. Is this the coolest way to get through your teens? Well, I cut my hair with a red that it was in. I look like a rooster that was drowning rain again. What are you going to do? I'm sure you guys have had conversations that have healed you from that breakup that happened after Muscle of Love. Were you able to look back, at, you're a lot younger then, and just see what happened from a, an outside view? My book had a lot to do with that. Right. It exercised a lot of demons for me, and it also made me see a lot of things that I had never realized the pattern. Let's face it, we were high school kids with a dream, and we made it to number one, right. and we were on top of the world. So there's not a lot to complain about. Unfortunately, the name was taken from us, and with the name goes the money and the fame and the decisions and everything. It was very difficult financially, and, you know, people automatically think that I live in this giant mansion because I'm a billion-dollar baby, but Cindy and I spent a lot of years really just treading waves. People don't realize that. They think Alice took off and went solo and we were left all set with our riches. like Alice and I ever sat down and had any real heart-to-heart -heart about it. We just continue, you know, and, and everybody knows Alice. Alice is everybody's best friend. That's what you love about him. Who do you think we are? No matter what hard feelings you might have had at that point, you had to be, I would imagine, really worried about your friend Vince, uh, Alice, as you saw him in tours like Special Forces, where he had gotten into the cocaine and he just looked terrible. I mean, you could have lost him at that time, I think. Well, Cindy and I would get reports, you know, like uh, Flo and Eddie, Mark and Howard of the Turtles. Right, right. Flo and Eddie, they would come over to our house for dinner. They'd tell us what was going on with Alice. 
he's going to die if somebody doesn't do something. He just looked so, awful at that time. He did. He looked awful, and in interviews, he'd say, oh, well, we're the band that only drinks beer, and people would buy that, you know, and we're like, you don't start looking like that from drinking beer, you know? Yeah. That yeah. thing on the Tom Snyder show was shocking. I have more energy now than I think I've ever had in my life, and I don't know why. I go on stage with the attitude of, of not the attitude of, gosh, I hope you like us tonight. I go with the attitude of, come here. Cindy and I would go and see him, and we would have talks with him. You know, it's easy to think that you can do something about somebody that has an addiction. Right. But it really boils down to them coming to that conclusion themselves. Yeah. Look at Elvis. I mean, people say, why didn't they stop him? But That's right. Plus tax. Alice says that he got up one morning, and he looked in the mirror, and there was blood coming out of his eyes. Wow. And that's, that's what shocked him into turning his, his life around. Welcome to my breakdown. I hope I didn't scare you. That's just the way we are when we come down. Alice's father was a part-time minister, so Alice found religion again, and his wife Cheryl, who's wonderful. It took him a while. He fell off the wagon once, but then he got back on the straight and narrow and has been for many years now. You know, if Alice wasn't the rock star that he is, he could have easily been a stand-up comedian. Or maybe even a minister. The cool thing about Alice, and I like people that have strong religious conviction, but they don't try to talk people into thinking their way about it. He's ready to talk about it if you want to talk about it, but he's not out to uh, convert anybody. I'm talking to Dennis Dunaway from the Alice Cooper Band. He's got a book out called Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs, My Adventures in the Alice Cooper Group. Fantastic book, Dennis. I really loved it. What's that experience been like for you? You said it was kind of cathartic in writing the book. You realized some things about yourself and about the band. It took me years to write that book. I was in the hospital in 1997, and it didn't look like I was going to make it. I have Crohn's disease, and I had declined to the point where the doctors didn't know that I'd be able to survive the surgery that was necessary. So I was there on IV to build up my strength. I was in the hospital for a month. All this fan mail started coming in, and I decided, I'm going to write a book. It's easy to say, I'm going to play guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Well, okay, do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I started writing it, and then about a third of the way in, I went back and started reading it, and I said, oh boy, this sounds like an amateur. So I started it again, and, the, and even a third time. And then it took like 10 years to find a proper publishing deal. For what it's worth, uh, uh, Dennis, and I'm glad I don't have to, to make this up, I really, really loved it. I'm a huge fan of the band, and for a fan of Alice Cooper, this book is everything you could possibly want it to be. Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs uh, by Dennis Dunaway. Dennis, before we close here, anything you want to say, just a, a final words about the Alice Cooper group? Uh, now that you're uh, getting a little bit older and you look back, what are you most proud of about that band? 
We were high school kids with a vision. You know, we got an idea in our head. We're going to become rock stars, and we're going to make an artistic statement. We went through thick and thin. We went through not having food. We went through everybody telling us that we were terrible musicians and we should pack it in. And we fought our way to our dream. We climbed the glittery rock pile to the very tippity top. So follow your dreams. That's what it's all about. You're still moving forward, aren't you, artistically? What are you doing these days musically? Well, I'm working on a new album with Blue Coop, which is a band of Joe and Albert Bouchard from Blue Oyster Cult fame. And uh, we have a lot of fun together. We've known each other since 1972 when the Alice Cooper Group and Blue Oyster Cult did some touring together. And this will be our third album. I do a lot of writing. I go out and I meet fans. I do monster conventions in New Jersey, the Chiller Show. And I'm lucky because my wife, Cindy, is Neil Smith's sister. And she did all the costumes for the Alice Cooper Group. So she's going to be putting out a book about that. Excellent. We're, we're in a good place in our lives. I'm going to have to let you go, Dennis, here, but I really want to thank you for your time today. It's been a, a more than an honor for me to speak with you, uh, sir, and I wish you nothing but continued success and happiness uh, in your life and for all the guys in the Alice Cooper group. Ah, oh, thanks, Clay. I really enjoyed this. Me too, man. Take care, Dennis. Bye. Bye.